to some extent, I think Bolsonarism has politicized the Brazilian society in such a way that I don't see this coming back. I mean, perhaps it's only good contribution for Brazilian society. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. It's Friday, the 28th of October. I'm Alex Hochuli here in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and joined as usual by Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare in the UK. Now, we're only two days away from the runoff in Brazil's election between Lula and Bolsonaro. And this is the fourth installment of an occasional series called Bunga Zone 2022, where we explore some deep themes in Brazilian politics and society using the uh, upcoming election as a plank to discuss these issues. So I wanted to turn to you guys first, Phil and George. Uh, what are your impressions of the election, uh, looking at it from afar? What stood out for you? What stood out for me was how far away I was. I really wanted to be closer, like, you know, maybe on Nipanema Beach with uh, Caparina, you know, something like that, or maybe even, you know, off the coast of Sao Paulo and Nila Belia, that would be nice. Um, but beyond that, like, uh, I think it's striking how uh, little it's been picked up on, you know, given the fact that um, the, so many people were willing the first time round to draw comparisons between Bolsonaro and uh, right-wing populism elsewhere, you know, and all the nonsense about him being kind of the Donald Trump of the tro- of the tropics and all that. It's remarkable how little an- attention there is this time around. I mean, you know, notwithstanding the fact that obviously the European and American press is preoccupied with inflation, the midterms in the US and the cost of living and so on, it's still surprising to me how little attention is being paid. Um, and maybe that's partly because it's so, you know, because it's so tight. Uh, the polls, because it's so difficult to fit it into an easy narrative, you know, um, but given the fact that it's uh, this tight runoff. So, um, you know, I guess uh, it's something to think about. George. Yeah, no, I mean, just to echo the, the main point that Phil was making, it's it's striking how little coverage it's received, even given the, you would imagine it would uh, kind of increase coverage, how close compared to how close it was expected to be the first round was that kind of ups the stakes it's like a a close draw in the first leg of a champions league semi-final going into the second leg that just adds to the to the drama as it were but no i think this idea that bolsonaro is kind of it's old news now like it doesn't fit into this like um uh encroaching world national populism or world fascism narrative so there's it's not as easy to to say that brazil is a is a bellwether or a reflection of the rest of the world's politics and yeah there are other things for western media at least to to focus on war in ukraine cost of living crisis etc um so yeah so in in that context additionally uh the series that we've done i think is particularly welcome or at least i hope it is by by listeners it was for me the ones that i was uh, that i've listened to of course <laughs> you know why yeah, i would imagine which is all of, all of them yeah yeah um, so I, I put that really badly i meant i've listened to I've, li- I've always listened to all of them. I mean, I want to have as much of a bungas hour as possible. Um, that's interesting to, to hear. Uh, my impression, of course, I'm in Brazil, so it makes it uh, hard to judge the external impression. But I, most of the foreign media that I see reporting on it, to take the New York Times, for, for example, they've done a lot of coverage. And of course, focusing on the Amazon. This is uh, an epochal election because the future of the Amazon is at stake. And as a consequence, yes, the future of you're right, uh, actually. the planet. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. That actually, that is the angle that I have seen. 
I wasn't following the New York Times on this. I was thinking more of the FT and the Guardian kind of, you know, the vanguard of Britain's liberal internationalist press. Um, but that's a really good point. It is. It has been refracted through um, through the Amazon. So who would the who would the trees vote for then? What's the um, what's the lines? I mean, they but, would certainly uh, vote for Lula. I mean, you know, deforestation fell quite uh, precipitously once he came in, and what Bolsonaro has done has, of course, uh, allowed for a free for all uh, in on, on the Brazilian frontier. Um, but that's not specifically what we're going to be discussing today. What you're about to hear now is me talking to Miguel Lago, who I'll introduce in the interview you're about to hear. So we're going to be talking about populism and specifically how Miguel urges us to reappropriate that term uh, about micropower as a basis of Bolsonaro's appeal and the face-off between a transcendental politics against the old form of transactional politics. What does all that mean? Well, you'll find out uh, listening to the interview now. Okay, I'm delighted to be here with Miguel Lago, who's a political scientist and the executive director of the Institute for Health Policy Studies in Brazil, IEPS, and he also teaches at Columbia University in New York. Hi, Miguel, how are you doing? Anxious, you said, or worried? What was it? <laughs> worried and anxious, yes. Thank yeah, you. Thank yeah, you so much. It's a, such an honor to be here with you. Great. Thank you. Um, thanks for being with us. And also, you know, we'll try to not convey too much anxiety in this discussion. Um, we're obviously four days from the second round runoff. And um, I mean, part of the reason I think we're nervous is that the polls were wrong uh, with regard to the first round. Uh, the strength of Bolsonarismo was underestimated. And if you're listening to this where you are, maybe in the United States, for example, you might find that all this sounds kind of similar. The polls are wrong and the forces of the new right were underestimated. Um, but all that said, Lula's still likely to win. And, uh, you know, that should be some comfort. But I think even if he does, Bolsonarismo isn't going away. I, I imagine, Miguel, you agree with that. And we also don't know how his movement and the security forces will react if Bolsonaro decides not to accept the result. So firstly, Miguel, uh, how would you characterize this, the way this election has been fought. I've previously called it and called it on previous Bungazon episodes, a plebiscite on democracy, but maybe there's other ways to frame it, such as, for example, between stability represented by Lula and apocalypticism represented by Bolsonaro. So anyway, I mean, that, those are just some suggestions. How would you frame it? You've, for example, discussed the idea that Bolsonaro raises the specter of a regressive utopia for the very first time. That's true. I would put... Um revolution revolution and counter-revolution uh being the revolutionary bolsonaro and and the counter-revolutionary lula um so I, I lula is a true conservative candidate bolsonaro is uh, the one who wants rupture uh so so in this sense i think that uh, all our uh political grammar that we are used to has been completely displaced um, because of this uh, new, thriving, uh, uh, far-right movement that we're seeing uh, emerging everywhere. Uh, so uh, we're used to have the right wing as conservatives, but they, they are no longer conservatives, not, not a, at least not in a political sense that, that we understand conservatives. Um, they want rupture, they want uh, sometimes in some cases we can argue that they want a revolution, uh, they want to dismantle institutions. Uh, it's very different from uh, what at least in Brazil or at least in Europe you had uh, and you conceived as uh, traditional conservatives. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I guess that's a little bit cheeky on your part to, to say that, you know, Bolsonaro is a revolutionary. Um, also, I mean, not least because Bolsonaro refers back to the military dictatorship as a as a revolution rather than, a, you know, initiated by a coup. So, but I, I, I think it's right the way you place emphasis on the disruptive aspects, I guess, of, of Bolsonarismo. One aspect, which I want to uh, start talking about straight away, actually, in terms of your characterization of Bolsonaro's appeal, is the idea of micropower, uh, and that he appeals to people on that basis. So basically, that is, if I've understood correctly, that it's not necessarily class domination, not traditionally understood, but something that might even be transversal to class. So it appeals to all those who hold power over someone else. So it's the teacher over the pupil, or the housewife over the domestic worker, or the husband over the wife. Uh, could you maybe explain exactly how this works and whether you see this as a, as a form of domination that goes alongside class or against class domination? How does it work? Well, Bolsonaro and Lula are both populists, uh, as we say, as um, Peron was, as uh, Vargas in Brazil was, as Margaret Thatcher was a populist in the UK. Um, I mean, uh, populism is a, a political logic. And uh, what I think it's different with Bolsonaro, and not, not only with Bolsonaro, but I see this, I know uh, it's the, let's say it's the case that I know uh, deeper, it's the Bolsonarismo. Is that uh, what is and, and when I say populism, I'm I'm talking much more about the the what we understand as populism in Latin America, not what um, uh, Anglo-Saxons tend to call populism, um, because normally populism in the Anglo-Saxon literature is something that is anti-democratic, anti-pluralistic, anti-institutions, etc. I don't see populism like this. I see populism as a a political logic um, that has worked uh, several times in Latin America. It's not left-wing. It's not right-wing. It's something that uh, divides uh, through discourse. You divide and define a society. Uh, and uh, in, in, in binary antagonisms that you are creating, in fact, or that you are naming, perhaps not creating, the, um, the antagonisms are there, but the way that you're framing them and that you're naming them is extremely important. And a true populist is the one that divides society into two uh, uh, between um, what we traditionally called the people and the elites. Um, Bolsonaro does, uh, Lula does a very traditional kind of populism because the people for him are the poor people, the workers, the the elites are the rich people. So as Getúlio Vargas, our biggest symbol of populism in Brazil, did exactly the same thing as Lula does. Uh, So it's it's a very common tradition in Latin America. What's innovative with Bolsonaro is that he divides society between people and elites, but the way he signifies the people and the elites is completely different. Uh, it's basically people <clears throat> who uh, are, people, let's say, the, 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 the he calls like, I, I wouldn't know how to translate it, cidadão de bem, so it will be yeah. like the, the good, good Like good citizen, but it doesn't yeah. quite capture it, yeah. Yeah, so, so good citizens. Uh, against enemies, leftists, communists, globalists, etc. 
So uh, in, uh, in, in, this, uh, in this division, in this discourse, what's amazing is that um, people who are extremely rich are part of the true people because they're good people, good citizens. Uh, and those who are the bad citizens uh, are, are those who should be raised and killed and, uh, and expelled from the country. Well, those are um, the, the intellectuals, the administrative elites. Um, so it's, um, it's something, uh, the NGOs. Uh, so uh, the way that Bolsonaro, for instance, criticizes, like, let's say, social movements, agrarian social movements that we have a lot in Brazil, um, the way he criticizes, not like the right wing has always criticized, um, it's like, no, they are, they are like grabbing the lands from the people, from the good citizens. So he's really dividing yeah. the society. The landowner is, is part of the people. The, and the, exactly. the landowner is, is part of yeah. the people. And the agrarian movement is the elite, which is extraordinary uh, as like uh, in terms of, of uh, speech construction. And it works. Um, so and, and what I think it's extremely powerful is that he not only he created this at a macro level, but he managed to <clears throat> uh, displace this to the micro relations of power that we have in our day-to-day -day, uh, lives. Um, and one of the things that he says to those good citizens uh, is that, well, you can do whatever you want. If you want to exert power, you are a good citizen. You can do it. Um, and you won't have the state, you won't have the NGOs, you won't have uh, the feminists, the communists, the globalists to um, uh, prevent you from doing uh, uh, and from exerting your power. So basically what I think it's very powerful as, um, as discussions is that it's linked to desire uh, and it's linked to a, let's say it's a awful desire, but the, the desire that exists that uh, people uh, like to feel that they can uh, have power upon someone else. Someone else. Uh, so, uh, so the way that he he uh, I, I I wouldn't say he's it's 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 not linked to the class struggle, but it's a way of maintaining, um, keeping, let's say, the the um, the conflictuous essence of the class struggle. Um, right. displace it uh, to, uh, um, uh, to a, a new way of dividing society that is not class uh, uh, segmented at all, and then um, uh, displace this to the micro-relations that you have between, uh, between citizens. And I think this is extremely powerful, and we don't have anything to compete with this. No, that's fantastic. I, I think that's such a, a brilliant kind of reading of what Bolsonarismo is and does. Uh, when I first encountered it in uh, in an essay you wrote for for Piaui, um, which came out I think last year. I mean, for listeners who aren't familiar, Piaui is like Brazil's New Yorker, if it were a few steps to the left, and also not called the New Yorker but called something like the Alabama or the Mississippi or something like that. Um, but I, I think to kind of tag on to that idea of, um, of of taking a certain conflictual energy, um, which I think is something which is 
common to all populism. Uh, regular listeners to this podcast will be familiar with an idea that we often discuss, which is that populism has been politicizing, um, particularly in its form as anti-politics, um, as a rejection of the political elite and so on. But at the same time, it has its certain uh, self-defeating or self-limiting nature. Um, and I like that you kind of bring that uh, stuff in in your discussion in your book on populism. I think one aspect of this micro power is visible in the fact that the discourse in this election, or rather the only side that is that is in contesting this election that really talks about freedom is Bolsonaro's camp, um, which is, I think, problematic um, <laughs> for, for, for a number of reasons. But I think it's maybe worth exploring what the nature of that freedom is, because it is um, I guess to steal a term from um, the criminologist Paul and Winlow, which is that of special liberty, which is not a, a liberty which would be in any sense universal, but is a liberty that is granted to the self um, or to the collective self to act um, without any regard for for any social limits. Do you think that's something that dialogues with your notion of micropower? Completely, completely, exactly. The the, the freedom is that that they want is exactly to don't have any kind of superego or institution that could uh, prevent them from, from exerting their, their desire, in fact. Um, yeah. uh, so I, I, I agree that the freedom is like, I can do whatever I want. Well, who are you to say that I cannot do this or say this? Yeah. Everyone is free. It's like, um, it's, it's, um, it's a weird way of, um, I mean, of subverting the idea of freedom of speech, for instance. Yeah. And, and I think so here is where the left uh, progressives and the kind of liberal center uh, all in a way play into Bolsonaro's hands, in my view. So and, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, because it seems that the pattern that plays itself out and it's one that isn't unique to Brazil, one saw it in the U.S., with Trump, uh, in Britain, with Boris Johnson, for that matter, and we can think of other examples besides, which is that Bolsonaro creates outrages in his declarations or even in his actions, which then generates a reaction uh, in which progressives appeal to moderation, to the defense of institutions, uh, or even sometimes calling on the judiciary to intervene. And it's worth uh, maybe making a, a call back to listeners to check out the previous episode of Bunga Zone 2022, which we did, in which we discussed very much um, the role that anti-corruption has played in Brazilian politics. Politics. Anyway, though, I say that only to mention that uh, anti-corruption and, and particularly the appeal to the judiciary was something that progressives had been opposed to over the past couple of years and now suddenly find themselves appealing to the judiciary to fight Bolsonaro with. And all this is to say that it, it allows Bolsonaro to continue to play the outsider and the victim. So do you think this is sort of the dynamic? Uh, do you agree with this characterization of the dynamic? I agree, Alex. I agree, but then, then that's what I, where, where I think that Bolsonaro is uh, is brilliant in this sense because uh, at the same time, how should we react? So uh, what what is very interesting is that um, so we were used to play politics, all parties, uh, under a, a certain set of rules. Once you're disrespecting all the rules. Uh, all the um, what is acceptable and uh, what is not, it's really hard to apply the rules on you because if you are applying the rules, um, you're incentivizing this kind of of, uh, of behavior. If you're not applying the rules, you're also incentivizing. So it's it's very hard. For instance, one of the key discussions that we had in Brazil in the first two years of Bolsonaro was whether should we do an impeachment or not to Bolsonaro. 
of course, there were many reasons to do the impeachment. It was not a, a, a question on, on, on about the legal basis or something. Yeah, yeah no, no legal basis because they were full of that, but much more political, let's say. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that I that I argued in a, in a, in, a, in in one essay that I wrote for Kiwi, the same in 2020, in the beginning of the year, I was saying, look, Bolsonaro wants the impeachment. He wants people to put an impeachment against him. So he's doing whatever he can to force institutions to, um, to start an impeachment process. Uh, what's the problem about that? Why does he want that? Because this way he can show to his uh, followers that he's a victim and that they should support him. So he can enter a chaotic, uh, chaotic month if he has an impeachment process. We're not discussing his government, we're discussing himself. Um, at the same time, so I was arguing, so an impeachment will help Bolsonaro and will make him stronger. At the same time, if you don't do an impeachment now, he will keep going and keep having the, the government machine and keep disrespecting institutions. And when, when will it stop? So again, there was no easy decision because in fact, both decisions will be, um, will be good for Bolsonaro to some extent. So, um, so it's, it's almost that they put ourselves, uh, I think they, they, they have a new, uh, a, a, a new grammar, a new political grammar, a new form of, 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 of um, it's, in this sense, I think it's a revolution uh, in, the, in the cultural sense um, and in a political sense. And we, we don't have the instruments to fight that uh, with the, the old instruments that we have with, uh, with our representative democracies, with rule of law. Um, we, we, we don't have them. We don't have them because I think it's, uh, I agree that, that the, 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 the Supreme Court is perhaps being very active and that in a, in a good democracy it shouldn't happen. But the fact is, if they, they are not active, what will happen? Uh, so, so at the same time, I don't know. It's, it's, I think it's a, an enigma that, that Bolsonaro puts to the institutions and we don't know how to answer. I don't have the answer for that. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and it, it seems to me that also the a lot of the mainstream institutions, which of which Bolsonaro has always been a part. I mean, you know, it's worth repeating that he's seven-term congressman and so on. Uh, they were relatively hands-off on Bolsonaro, obviously in 2018, um, when they very much enabled his rise to power. And, and this I would also include the media and so on. Um, to the, but then at, at a certain point, belatedly, they decide that they need to rein him in a bit. And the, the way that they seem to be reining him in is particularly on speech, which then allows him to portray himself as a free speech warrior, because very little has been done to prevent him, for example, the creation of the secret budget, um, which where huge amounts of funds have been spent. Uh, and so there was no institutional intervention on those grounds, on the real things that matter. And so belatedly, they start intervening by saying, you know, you can't, um, you know, you can't say that, you can't publish that video, you can't post that bit of propaganda and so on, um, which again, very much plays into Bolsonaro's hands. Um, now, I mean, I was going to ask you about populism kind of more analytically, but you've already sort of discussed it. So I'm not going to spend maybe too much time on it, I, just to note that um, 
analytically you um you think that it's useful um and also politically you think that it's useful just analytically i mean you center the notion or a certain reading of populism as a style a theatric performance um looking really at the, at the issue of transgression and breaking taboos which i think is um in my i mean that's something that i certainly um, would agree with um but you've also said that lula and bolsonaro are populist but that populism is more um a question of degree rather than of an absolute yes or no. So maybe we could just talk a little bit more about how that works. Absolutely. So Alex, I, I, I exactly. So it's always a matter of degree of populism um, and, and populisms can be different uh, from one another. One thing that I think it's, that I find that is, it's, it's really hard to define populism because you have a major scholar discussion um, and, and scholars do not agree of, on what is populism. So um, <clears throat> what we see, for instance, normally more in Anglo-Saxons um, scholar work is like populism is like the concept that they use to define what they're not understanding about this new emergent movements, uh, this new right-wing emergent movements. Uh, and populism is always presented, in fact, portraying what Trump is, what Orban is, and, and so on and so on. Um, I think that in Latin America, we have uh, a, a long history of populism that, um, and, and many examples of populism, right-wing, left-wing, that uh, gives us another uh, way of looking to populism uh, than, uh, uh, than the, the Anglo-Saxon have. So, so I think this is, it's not linked to, to the new technology of communication, as uh, as this new far right movement, global movement is, which doesn't mean that they are not populists. They are populists as well, but but populism is not only them. Uh, so so this is something that I think it's important that for us to use, and not necessarily populist. Uh, it's their most important political characteristic. But again, we're calling them fascist populists. We we don't know how to name them properly, right? It's illiberal leaders. Um, I mean, it's a little bit of everything but it's we don't still have concepts to really define uh, yeah. what is this new movement and this is normal because it's something that is super new so <clears throat> uh, but, but populism uh, i would say that it's uh analytically it's very interesting but the problem that we we don't have um let's say a common ground on the definition of populism and makes that everybody can be a populist as you mentioned like i, I mean you have some authors that will argue that Mao Zedong uh, Margaret Thatcher, uh, Ronald Reagan, were populists. Yeah. Uh, Thatcher, I'm pretty sure I, I consider her as a populist <laughs> and a very good populist. Uh, I mean, a very effective populist. Uh, not sure if Reagan and uh, and Mao Zedong were were that populists, or if this is uh, an important part of their political construction. For instance, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, but but some authors will argue they are. Some authors will will say that, no, uh, you have some authors in Brazil who say, no, but Getulio Vargas and Lula aren't populists. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and, and they are just like uh, uh, a labor. <laughs> so, uh, so, so it really depends on the way that, uh, that, that you define populism. But one of the characteristics that we found is this the division of society and the mobilization of society uh, through uh, this, the, the partition of society into two. Into people and elites. In this sense, as I mentioned, Lula and Bolsonaro are populists, but it's important that we don't use populism as a way, as Brazilian press 
often does, and some politicians who are neither aligned with Bolsonaro, neither aligned with Lula, often call them populists in order to make an equivalence between them. It's the new version of a totalitarian theory where, you know, Stalin and Hitler are exactly the same. Marxism and fascism are the same, etc. And it's, yeah, I think that can be easily dismissed as, um, you know, a kind of defense mechanism on the part of uh, establishment forces and so on. But it's even worse than because, I mean, Stalin and Hitler are much closer than Bolsonaro is from Lula. <laughs> <laughs> Because I like Lula is a moderated left winger, and Bolsonaro is a completely nuts far right leader. So it's 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 very different. <laughs> so let's say that. Um, but I agree. So those are the, the let's say the the false equivalences that are created in order exactly for. So so uh, so so they are different in in different degrees. But I think that Lula is not doing a populist campaign. And that's one of the things that worry me because uh, Lula is doing, um, even though Lula in the past had a populist discourse and is a populist leader, he's not doing uh, populism. He's doing something else. Um, so he's, he's creating like a, a, a platform that is basically, it's, it's almost a conservative speech, right? Yeah. We want to conservate democracy. We want to uh, protect the rule of law, and and we're like uh, having a, a coalition of uh, many people who are different but who have this in common. And where so it's it's like um, it's 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 like, yeah it's 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 like a uh, how do you call it? Um, it's almost a consensual government, right? Yeah. There's no conflict. It, 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 uh, yeah, I'm sorry. It, it's kind of, and I mean, the part of the nostalgia, I mean, I'm going to come on to this a little bit more specifically, but just as a sidebar to that, there is a, the nostalgia of Lulismo is not just a nostalgia to the um, economic growth and inclusion of the 2000s, but also in a way to the post-politics, to the consensus managerialism of the 2000s, which um, is problematic. But before we get on to that, because I want to discuss that a little bit in more depth, I want to go back to Julio Vargas um, because um, you have argued in this essay, which I've already referred to, and uh, I guess for anybody who reads Portuguese, it's included in the show notes. You made an argument that basically Lula had to embody Vargas. And if you're not familiar with Vargas, just very briefly, uh, he's easily Brazil's most important 20th century politician. He came to power in 1930 on the back of a revolution led by young military officers opposed to the old oligarchy. Then he became dictator in 1937, instituting an authoritarian nationalist and anti-communist regime, which was, I guess you could say, somewhat fascist inspired. But then he came back in 1950, democratically elected as a nationalist modernizer and very much as a populist. Um, so with all that said, you know, listeners might be going, OK, how do you want Lula to be this? Why does that make any sense? Why is that a good thing even? So maybe explain. So is a very very complicated um, uh, historical figure of power because the worst dictatorship we had uh, was under him. The eight awful years of the Estado Novo from 37 to 45. Uh, at the same time, uh, he created modern Brazil in 20 years. From So he was in power from 30 until 54 uh, with um, 
with a period that he was from 46 to 50, he was out of power. But, but essentially, he was governing Brazil for 20 years. And he basically um, uh, made Brazil what Brazil is until now. Uh, so uh, if we started having industries, was thanks to Getulio. If we started having something that now it's uh, completely uh, uh, deconstructed and well deconstructed because uh, that was important for that time for a, an extremely racist country as Brazil, but they created the myth of racial democracy in Brazil, which was a myth. But in the 30s, in a country where um, uh, the, the, the black communities were, were the majority of the population and they could not exert their religion, they could, Samba was uh, criminalized so every inch of a black culture in Brazil was completely criminalized uh, until Getulio Vargas came. And Getulio started saying that we were like a cosmic race, uh, um, uh, a racial democracy, which of course is not true. Uh, but this was important in that moment uh, as, a, as a response to the completely white supremacist uh, uh, oligarchy that we had. So, so uh, to some extent, uh, I think that uh, the good and the bad things that we have as a national identity nowadays were built uh, in the 30s and the 40s. Um, everything from the, the love of football, the, the samba has become the, the national music in Brazil, the carnival, everything was uh, to some extent built by, by Getulio Vargas and his governments and etc. So, so, so his... Uh, it's very difficult to analyze this character um, because you have many Getúlios. Uh, and, um, but when I refer that Lula should be like Getúlio, is the, 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 the last Getúlio from 50 to 54, um, where uh, Getúlio um, came back to power, elected, um, with 48% of the votes, exactly the same score that Lula had uh, in the first round. Um, and um, by that time, you didn't have a second round, so Getúlio was elected <clears throat> directly. Uh, but, but basically, what Getúlio created was a campaign that was a conflictuous campaign. So uh, it was uh, elites against people. Uh, so one of the, and, and you have slogans from that time, and Getúlio himself was not really a religious person, but, uh, and he didn't promote religion as something important in his government. He was quite atheist or agnostic. <clears throat> but but he, he reproduced, for instance, the, the religious um, uh, phrasing, the, the, uh, the idea of the saints in Brazil uh, in order to produce a very beautiful campaign in the 50s that was at the same time like our uh, uh, the vai voltar, so the old uh, our old ruler is coming back, which is something that Lula is doing a lot. So the good president from the past is coming back. Mm -hmm. So th in this sense, Lula is exactly like Getúlio was in fifty, but Getúlio has a had a much more conflictuous proposal for coming back. This time he will govern. He will free the workers. Which is something that Lula hasn't has not not at all this message. Uh, the message that Getulu had was this will be a second abolition. So mm. if we had an abolition of the slaves in the 19th century, now Getulu will do the final abolition 
of um, the workers. So um, this will be a worker-driven uh, government. Um, and so this was the platform where he was elected. And all, um, all the press was against him. Um, all the political traditional political parties were against him. Uh, even the, one of the political parties he built himself, the PSD, uh, which was a, a right-wing party uh, that had another candidate. Uh, so, so he really did uh, a campaign that was based in the unions that, that had this discourse. So I, I'm not saying that Lula should do like a leftist uh, um, campaign, not at all. But that I think that Lula should have been a populist in this campaign. I mm. think that uh, in order to fight uh, the Bolsonaro in the, the Brazilian society, populism can be uh, um, one of the answers. Uh, but a, but a populism that respects democracy, that respects institutions, that respects um, human rights, uh, not not evidently the the kind of populism that that. Um, that Bolsonaro does. <clears throat> yeah. And I mean, of course, Getulli's government very much was not one led by workers, but um, at the most was no, against no, a, corporate, a, a corporatist arrangement. Turning to Lula more specifically, I think that, I mean, I think that proposal for uh, Lula Getulio is interesting. Um, but what strikes me as potentially a similarity, but also a shortcoming of Lula is precisely the paternalism, because I've already mentioned the nostalgia aspect, the nostalgia for the good times, nostalgia for stable, orderly politics, also democracy, defense of democracy. Ultimately, that's what Lula's broad front is about, but also a certain paternalism. And I think, you know, uh, it was very evident in the debates, for example, where he um, very much portrayed this paternalistic image of a responsible father figure who cares for his children, even saying, you know, what I want is to care for people. And I wonder whether that paternal, whether you find that paternalism works in contemporary Brazil, a Brazil, which is much more post-traditional, perhaps less deferential uh, than it, than it was in the past, whether that sort of paternalism works, maybe it works in certain regions among certain groups of people, but maybe not overall. Yeah, I think, I think it's, I think it works in, in, in some regions, but I agree with you. I think this is something that is dying. Uh, I, I think this is working less and less. Uh, the, saying that you want to care about people, that you want to take care of them. Um, yeah, the, this paternalistic discourse uh, of, of Getulio, of Lula, I think this is something that is, as you, as you mentioned, like the society, Brazilian society is different nowadays. Um, and I think this works less and less. Yeah, and and I think even I mean, funnily, because you were talking about in reference to Getulio about modernization, samba, carnival, and actually, in many ways, you know, this is the uh, now a country which is you know demodernizing. Uh, no more the more the country of sertanejo of country music than samba. Um, exactly. Carnival doesn't have such a central place. So I think no. these these transformations are something that. Pete and Lula haven't entirely grappled with. Um, and I wonder whether your solution of populism in, in a way is a, is a response to that or if it's part of the same problem. I don't know. Um, yeah, no, I, I wouldn't say that we should do a populism in, in terms of paternalism. Uh, but I think that uh, that there, um, 
I think that since we have a great populist leader, <laughs> which is Lula, yeah. uh, it, it will be easier if it was incorporated perhaps by him. Um, but but I, but I think that um, you can have populist movements without leaders, uh, like the Gilets Jaunes in France yeah. um, uh, is a populist movement without a leader, um, the, the, uh, to some extent. Um, the... Uh, so, so what I think is that that, uh, but it, I think it's much easier when you have a leader when it comes to populism, um, uh, and what I think is that the, uh, I think you should divide society in the same way that Bolsonaro is doing, but not with the same uh, signifiers. Yeah. Uh, what, what do I mean is that uh, I don't think it should be so connected to social classes. Uh, because I think that people don't identify themselves primarily. Uh, their, their primarily political identity is not necessarily linked to their social classes any longer as it was in the past. Um, so what I think is that um, it could be more uh, powerful uh, and more effective uh, to have people <clears throat> uh, uh, being divided um, in 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 some way uh, where you have the people who really who really try to survive in Brazil and the people who are simply trying to oppress or take advantage of people. Mm -hmm. uh, we have an expression in Brazil that is encostado. Uh, so one of the things that I, I mentioned in, in the Piauí article was that uh, in one side you have the batalhadores, the survivors, because it's really hard to survive in Brazil. Uh, it's really hard, uh, and the survivor can be um, uh, uh, a trans person who's trans in Brazil, which is absolutely, you need to be really, uh, uh, have a lot of courage to do that, because this is one of the countries that kills trans people. Uh, um, uh, if, you, if you are uh, a, a worker woman with a family, and you don't have a, um, normally, those families don't have a male because the men have left the family, don't give money to the children. Um, this is also a survivor. Um, uh, but, but, but also like a businessman who wants to do business in Brazil and uh, doing all properly and correctly without um, giving Any money kind of or, corrupt dealings, uh, or yeah. corrupting anyone. Yeah, or paying all... all, all all his uh, uh, like uh, fair wages to their uh, to their team. Uh, so those are also survivors because it's really hard to compete because the other businessmen do not like uh, do, do not do that like this. So I think that this is something that um, having some kind of new polarization that could work at the micro level of uh, interactions, but that would will not be sociologically pre-defined. Uh, um, I think mm. this will be important to try to, to, to try to dispute the narrative of the Bolsonaro. And and I don't see this happening. Uh, and, and I certainly don't see Lula as the person who wants to do this. I think Lula has um, an impression that Brazil is still a Catholic country, that Brazil is <laughs> uh, still, uh, you still have like um, uh, workers uh, who are like industrial worker, workers. Like he's talking to this Brazil, to the Brazil of the, yeah. of the 90s. A, a Brazil that he, in some sense, you know, oversaw the collapse of, to a certain degree, oversaw the deindustrialization of Brazil, the Absolutely. the bureaucratization of his of his base and of, of cadres and so on in the party. So, anyway, I, 
on the idea of, of, of strivers or survivors against, um, against uh, freeloaders, I guess would be the right way to put it in English. Um, freeloaders, it right. is, yeah, is, uh, is interesting to be explored further, perhaps another time. Um, but it, it, that touches on an issue, which I did want to come on to now, which is the issue of transcendence, um, the, you know, and listeners might be going, okay, hang on, where are you going with this? But of transcendence versus a politics of um, maybe stability and indeed maybe even of, of bare life, because to a certain extent, Lula speaks uh, to that politics of, of life, right, um, of promising perhaps a bit more than bare life because, but, you know, very, the key issue, which he's always been primarily concerned with is hunger. The one thing that he will do if he's elected um, as a primary move will be to do something about, about hunger um, in Brazil, which was famously conquered uh, during his period in power and, and now has has come back in Brazil. Um, but there's also a little bit more to that than just that, because of course he's also promising, you know, barbecues and uh, beer and a barbecue at the weekend, which um, is more than bare life. Um, it's not everything, but it's, uh, it's something. Now, Bolsonarismo contrasts to that quite strongly, particularly the aspect that you highlight, which is his bringing of a mysticism or an aspect of transcendence back to politics that was absent during the past decades. Now, obviously, listeners to the Global Politics podcast at the end of the end of history will know where I'm headed with this. The, the 90s and 2000s was a politics of the condominium between the PT and the PSDB, the center-right social democratic party, as it's called, um, which is a politics of consensus, uh, bureaucracy and administration, and so on. That was Brazil's end of history. So in a way, Bolsonarismo, and it's this kind of apocalyptic, transcendent vision tied to the evangelical churches and so on, in a way may represent Brazil's end of the end of history. Um, do, you, do you agree with that kind of categorization? And, and do you think that there is something to be learned to put it that way, it's something to be learned from Bolsonaro and Bolsonarismo's channeling of a certain politics of the transcendent. Absolutely, Alex, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think that the, this condominium uh, did many good things for Brazil, like we owe to them the end of inflation, inequalities were reduced, um, uh, political stability, um, some human rights, uh, 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 and rule of law. So yeah, I think I think this condominium was, let's say, perhaps the best years we had in Brazil in, in democratic terms, in terms of um, of a more democratic uh, society. And uh, so so it had many advantages, and I, and we cannot simply say this um, this yeah. Uh, I, I think they I value what they did, but at the same time, um, in 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 terms of political speech it was only about developing brazil and uh and making your life better uh basically giving you more beer and more meat um in in both ways of course with different um ways of, of portraying or framing this discourse but essentially best the bnpt were competing to see who could deliver more uh as if the people wanted more services and better public services, um, which is something that uh, I think we take from granted, um, and it's not always the case. I mean, I want better public services for sure. I I, I, uh, I would love to have better public schools, better public uh, health facilities, and so on. Uh, and I know that I'm, I'm a big part of the population as well, 
but what I think that Bolsonaro does, it's something more powerful because he connects, as you said, with the transcendence. Like politics is not about um, delivering services. Politics is about something else. It's about a political identity. It's the way that you behave in society. To some extent, I think Bolsonaro has politicized the Brazilian society in such a way that I don't see this coming back. I mean, perhaps it's only good contribution for Brazilian society that it, it has politicized uh, society mm-hmm. in a way that it wasn't before. Um, and, and, and what I think is that, uh, of course, the content of this politicization is, is awful. Um, but, but, but again, I think this is this extremely powerful and um, you're linked to something bigger than your daily life. And, yeah. and I, that's what I think that Bolsonaro is offering you. It's like uh, the transformation of our country is in your hands. So to some extent, really, the uh, the myth of the politics, of the big politics, uh, are in your hands. And this is very powerful, and, and I think this is very important uh, for, for all political agents to promote, and uh, not only the, the far right. Uh, basically, what the left and the right has tell us, like, no, please deliver your power to us, and we will know what to do. And then you you get like a, like if it were a transaction, and it's not the case in Bolsonaro. There's no transaction at all because if there was a transaction, <laughs> you'd be getting something Bolsonaro back. Would be stealing, yes, exactly. <laughs> and which is not the case. So it's not about transaction. And and then we get to the apocalyptical stage of the Bolsonaro. I think, but this is not for all uh, Bolsonaro's voters because. Uh, well, right now I'm, I'm looking at a building in front of me. I'm in Ipanema, um, where my office is. And um, I can see like a lot of Brazilian flags in the building just right in front of me from rich people who are probably atheist or Catholic, not evangelical. And, and there are enough reasons for them to put like a Brazilian flag uh, representing that they love Bolsonaro. Uh, even though Bolsonaro is responsible for hundreds and thousands of deaths in Brazil. So for those rich voters, what I'm going to say doesn't apply. Yeah. But I think that there's a specific set of voters where, let's say, the popular vote that Bolsonaro has, that is neo-Pentecostal. And um, the neo-Pentecostalism in Brazil is, well, is important from America. Completely. And, and it's a, a way of interpreting the book of the Apocalypse of John that is completely different from other Protestant tradition or the Catholic tradition of reading it. And the way that they read the Apocalypse is that uh, we're approaching the Apocalypse, and this is good because the Apocalypse is a good thing. And we're having signs. God is sending us signs that we are approaching to the Apocalypse. So what, what we need to make sure is that we are the people of God who will be saved from the apocalypse. And this is extremely uh, dangerous because Bolsonaro, this is an interpretation that I have, which is just an, a hypothesis and I might be wrong, but is for instance, the way that Bolsonaro led the pandemic was in my view, completely motivated by a specific no Pentecostal interpretation of the apocalypse which was in the apocalypse, there is a 
uh, uh, passage where they say that the the beast, the devil, will force humanity to use its mark as the beast. How how should I call it? The mark of the beast. Yeah, the mark of the beast. Uh, so the, and and people will only be able to trade and to access space if using the the mark of the beast. So of course, masks, vaccination becomes the marks of the beast in their interpretation. And that's the way that I see why Bolsonaro doesn't use masks, why Bolsonaro keeps saying that vaccination is a problem and you shouldn't get vaccinated yourself because the, he is building this as signs of the apocalypse. And this is very useful politically because if it's about the apocalypse, it's, if everything is a sign from the apocalypse, climate change, global warming, um, uh, hunger, everything is not something that is produced by humans or by governments, but it's produced by God. It's mm -hmm. inevitable. So there's nothing we can do. The only thing that we can do is that we can be inside um, the church of Jesus and, and make sure that we, uh, we will be saved from the apocalypse. So I think when we say that Bolsonaro was incompetent, he wasn't incompetent. He was very competent. The only thing is that he didn't want to save lives. That's yeah. <laughs> if you say he's incompetent, is that he need never tried to save lives. You cannot say it's incompetent. This is not a, a good way of analyzing it. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I, I think there's certainly something compelling to that, and I think you know, I don't think it's, and I, I'm sure you don't mean it this way that this is the the whole part of the story, or that that applies necessary to what Bolsonaro himself is rationalizing or thinking about it. It's. Um, he knows that he has this certain base amongst you neo know, Pentecostals, which is very strong and active, and that sort of um, sort of politics will will play well. I, I guess zooming out a little bit, it's also a particular the particular form that the naturalization of politics, of society, of economy takes. Right, so um, you know the pandemic is something that comes somehow naturally, whether it's God in, in quotation marks doing it, or whether it's a kind of natural a phenomenon, um, rather than something which is amenable to like social human di uh, direct intervention. Um, and naturalization uh, is always, I guess, a form of uh, conservative politics, right, of, to, to naturalize affairs, um, both in terms of leaving it to the market, as well as, you know, leaving it to nature, whether we die or not from the pandemic, you know, we don't need to actually have any scientific intervention to try to change affairs. Anyway, to, to come back to the question of transcendence, I think it's right that, you know, the left today does not really have any notion of teleology, of transcendence. Um, it has favored generally a politics of bare life and of stability, right? To defend democratic institutions and to defend welfare. Um, and the question of freedom of emancipation seems to be pretty absent from that story. And in fact, so much so that it leaves a lot of space open to the new right to claim the banner of freedom, as Bolsonaro has done, um, because the left doesn't uh, doesn't seize upon it. One way in which that freedom, I guess, um, is manifest on the in, in the new right is that bit of populism, which is quite crucial to populism, which is transgression. 
right? And and that ability to satirize, ability to transgress norms, ability, freedom to, um, you know, to poke fun at people's uh, sense of decorum or whatever it might be, um, public standards even. Taking the case of Brazil, but maybe speaking a little bit broadly, I'm interested in what your opinion is, whether the left in some ways should be defending public standards, civic institutions, and so on, or trying to reclaim transgression, because traditionally the left was the party of transgression, not the right. The problem with this interview, Alex, is that we agree not in everything. <laughs> Look, uh, I think this is a brilliant analysis. I, I, I agree with you. Um, I think the left is occupying nowadays what um, traditionally the conservatives used to occupy. Right? Um, the, so, so the anti-transgressors are always the conservatives are defending the status quo, um, uh, trying not to have big ruptures or, or um, right, trying also accommodate change but like let's let's do change like in transitions very softly without harming anyone and and, and I think that the, the the left has incorporated this discourse I'm not saying I don't think that the, the left should be transgressive towards our institutions and our uh, or the rule of law not at all I think we should keep those values I think it's very important to have a let's say democratic left that is defending uh, democracy and the democratic institutions. But I think defending the political institutions shouldn't be a political value. This should be something taken for granted, as I think that corruption shouldn't be like a political value. Like you shouldn't be corrupted. It's, it's a basis. It's a basis of everything. So I'm not sure if the politicization of the defense of those institutions are uh, the best way of attracting voters or, or building uh, political discourses. Uh, of course, you need to defend institutions, but I don't know if that your main discourse should be like we're defending democracy. Um, but certainly the left should um, reintroduce conflict in its discourse. And mm -hmm. I don't see conflict in the discourse of the left. What I see is conservatism. It's like, let's let's not lose what we, we conquered. And I think this is great. We, we need to keep our big conquests, but, but uh, this is not enough. I don't, I, don't, I don't think you create political desire defending a Supreme Court. I don't think you create yeah. political, which doesn't mean that you, you need to defend them, but this cannot be your major political achievement. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, fantastic. Um, I'm not going to let you go, though, without, uh, because we're so close, a little prediction, um, what's going to happen on Sunday? Look, uh, I think it will be a very, very tight election. I wouldn't say Bolsonaro is the favorite. However, I think that the Bolsonaro's campaign is way better than, is doing a better job than Lula's yeah. campaign. Uh, and I think um, way better. So, of course, Lula has six million votes or five million votes. I don't remember exactly the yeah, amount. It's a lot more, of votes yeah. ahead. It's a lot. It's a lot of votes ahead. Uh, but Bolsonaro is doing a better campaign than Lula uh, uh, in the second round. Yeah, I guess it will be very hard to say. <laughs> <laughs> Evasive. It, it shouldn't be. It, it should be like, uh, of course, Lula. Uh, but no, it's not because we had a terrible government. Not, not only all the horrors that we know, but it also was 
in terms of transaction, there was nothing good uh, during the Bolsonaro government, which is something that you cannot say about Modi, for instance, in India or yeah. Orban in Hungary. There, I mean, a, a, any government can do good things except for Bolsonaro. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a, that's an important point to underline. It's not just a sort of oh, we're against you know right wing populists or whatever. It's like yeah, Bolsonaro is actually in some ways the even the worst amongst his category. So um, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So and we are having like the biggest leader. Of, of the last 50 years of politics in Brazil, uh, who's so we Struggling. have, our, it's like, yeah. like we, we have our best player and still, uh, and we have the worst player on the other side, but still uh, it's hard to say. Uh, so yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say Bolsonaro Lula favorites. I think uh, anyone could win this election, but certainly if I need to, to bet on a score, it will be like 50.5, 49.5. It will be like that yeah, close. I'm- yeah, I, I think I should I should be honest here and put my money where my mouth is as well and say it's going to be forty nine fifty one uh, in yeah. for, in Lula's favor and uh, Bolsonaro is not going to accept the election result and it's going to be no. a lot whole lot of confusion um, at the very no. least. It will be a confusion, but it's important that Lula wins the election because that yeah. means that uh, that doesn't mean that Lula will govern, but at least this means that Brazilian society wanted wanted Bolsonaro out, and this means a lot uh, for me. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Miguel, thank you very much. This has been great. Thank you so much, Alex. Um, It was really, really great. Obrigado. Hello, welcome back. It's Alex, George, and Phil here. If you've enjoyed what you're hearing, make sure to drop us a review, drop us five stars wherever you get your podcast, and make sure you hit subscribe if you don't already. Now, uh, Phil and George, what did you think of that? I think I want to start with this issue of populism. As I said in the interview, you know, Miguel has both an analytic approach to it, but also has a political proposition of a Miguel urges Lula to adopt populism more explicitly. What do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, I was uh, I have to say I was kind of horrified by um, um, <laughs> by Miguel's willingness to endorse Vargas as the kind of model that Lula should go for. Um, and I think it speaks to me the fact that, you know, he's willing on the one hand, he's kind of he admits that Vargas was, you know, Brazil's worst dictator, um, but at the same time thinks that he should be that Lula should emulate him in order to stave off the threat of Bolsonaro. I mean, I've just found it, you know, kind of a remarkable cry of desperation by a left wing, you know, a left wing intellectual Vargas was kind of fascist adjacent. I don't think he was a fascist, but this kind of idea of it conceding that he was the worst, Brazil's worst dictator on the one hand, but also a great man on the other, and that he's provides like a paradigm that should be emulated. That just seems to me um, so, yeah, so well, desperate and so, wrong-headed. I was kind of, my breath was taken away, to be honest. So do you think that even, because I think Miguel's proposition is very much the democratic Vargas of 50 to 54 and not the dictatorial Vargas. Um, and, and specifically the way that he kind of constructed a notion of the Brazilian people, which was more inclusive than before. I think, you know, that's what he yeah, so what I was Well, what I was going to say was, so, you know, I mean, I mean, that was a part, though the multiracial, you know, the multiracial thing was a part of Portuguese and Brazilian kind of Lusophone fascism. The idea that Portuguese superiority was evident in the fact that they, um, you know, that they were so effective at kind of combining all races, but that notwithstanding that, like the reason I, I mean, the other reason I thought it was so um, surprising is also because he admitted your points, 
right, about the fact that the Brazil of today isn't the Brazil that Lula emerged from. So, you know, he says he makes the point that Vargas was effective in presenting modern Brazil built around football, around the kind of mythology of multiracialism, around samba, around carnival. Um, but then he admitted when you said, you know, it's the Brazil of deindustrialization, the Brazil of the evangelical and not the Catholic Church, the Brazil in which, you know, nobody kind of cares or listens to samba anymore. That Brazil is gone. So it seems, you know, like the trying to recreate that Brazil or a politics that tries to recreate a Brazil that doesn't exist anymore will simply recreate the problem um, of Bolsonaroismo to begin with. Yeah. Right. So the only way to escape, it seems to me that Lula, far from kind of trying to recreate Vargas's Brazil, he should be, you know, kind of trying to speak to the Brazil of the 21st century. Otherwise, Bolsonaro will monopolize that terrain. Isn't it more that the suggestion was emulate Vargas in in producing a new national project of Brazil that didn't previously exist rather than going back yeah. to Vargas's specific Brazil with the football, samba and, and so on? And that's a bit more, you know, to be a national modernizer um, rather than to be a to to return specifically to the image of Brazil that Vargas um, created. Perhaps I, miscon- perhaps I misconstrued, but nonetheless, I mean, it seems to me like if you transplant that context to any other national one where you would suggest that the worst dictate, you know, that the threat that we confront at the moment from a populist leader is so extreme that it merits taking inspiration from the admittedly worse na- dictator in modern national modern history. I mean, that's, you know, kind of, I think that's astonishing. No, I, I do take, I do take that political point. I think perhaps your judgment is slightly skewed by your anti-footballism. So this idea of a national <laughs> project centered on football um, appalls and disgusts you. Whereas many it of does. us that on this podcast true. think that this would be, Oh, what a what a country to on live in! On the other in. hand, um, on the other hand, I do like samba and carnival. So yeah, true. Yeah. I, I, should, I should point out that samba is not going away. You know, it, it's more just a, a question of tendencies and and what's new and what's old, rather than no one caring about samba anymore. Anyway, okay. So turning to this issue of micropower, it's something that I found very compelling when reading Miguel's writings, and I think George, when I had mentioned it to you, uh, you also found it quite interesting. And I want to ask you about whether you think that has wider relevance, whether you think that has a certain appeal in. Uh, Europe or North America. Um, And uh, just to spell out, I guess, a little bit what the content of that is, it's an appeal which is transversal to class and appeal. And it's an appeal on the basis of you can do whatever you want if you hold some power in society. And that isn't power necessarily from the top with, you know, from the state or from economic power at the top of a corporation. That's clear. That's clear, I think, from the discussion, but it was more, I suppose, um, what's intriguing from the outside is, you know, what is the signal in Bolsonaro's propaganda that elicits that response or is the kind of the um, invitation to, you know, or the the, um, encouragement to indulge in these kind of in the feeling of enjoying micropower? Um, because that, I think, is difficult to read from the outside unless you're in Brazil or have familiarity with Brazilian kind of culture and politics. I mean, if, if, I mean, if you just think of a machismo, which I know, you know, is not so present in North uh, Northern Europe, for example. So but I'm sure you can uh, you know, imagine that how that plays out, how how, you know, the the domestic violence might increase because there's just an, an increase in impunity. Um, for those who are cast as good citizens, see that don't obeying, you can kind of get away with what you want. And so one example 
although this refers much more to traditional understandings of power too, but um, people will have heard about the episode of Roberto Jefferson, a former congressman, uh, famously corrupt, uh, who is a Bolsonaro ally, who has been under house arrest for a long time. He broke the conditions of his house arrest. Federal marshals came to his house and he came out with guns and threw a grenade at them and shot at the federal police. Um, and, the fe and then the federal police were shown inside the house, just casually talking to him and kind of laughing and so on, right? Something that wouldn't, uh, you know, obviously if you were uh, not white and not rich, he'd already be dead. Um, it's that kind of notion of, um, I guess, of micro power of kind of, I can, um, no, I get that, I, but I, I don't, large, but I don't, you know? I do, you know, where is, where is, what does Bolsonaro do where it's kind of the wink to people to indulge micropower, particularly people who aren't, you know, wealthy. Cause if the appeal is based on micropower, it surely must go much further than corrupt wealthy politicians, right? It must kind of permeate throughout people who are much less kind of elevated. And I just wondered, you know, what is the, what are the examples of that? Well, I mean, the local like, private yeah. guard on the street corner, right? He can just be much more abusive um, in in the use of the very limited power that he has over people, um, or any kind of you know relation of authority that that exists. Um, you know, I mentioned maybe pu teachers over their pupils, for example. Um, you know, you can kind of uh, think, you know, in Foucauldian terms, uh, kind of across society, what that looks like, um, which is, I guess, a response to a certain. On the one hand, a brutalization or reflection of a wider brutalization of Brazilian society, but also of um, a, a rejection of any kind of, you know, kind of social cultural progress which has happened, which is which has sought to, you know, for example, tame um, certain expressions of machismo, for example, and a rejection of that and saying, hang on, let me just do whatever I want without concern for um, changing mm. social norms. I guess my question about micro power in general is how, and it's probably a bit related to what Phil was asking, like how you move from this being quite a select and very small group of people to making an appeal that can be, that can win you an election. Because I guess my understanding would be that most people in society don't hold, aren't in relationships where they hold directly kind of power over people in the sense of being, are an armed guard when other people aren't and that's how they interact um with people no matter how militarized social relations might be and they're probably more militarized in brazil than than in the uk for example so i guess my sort of my thinking was was because I, I think it's quite a kind of provocative starting point in that it takes that kind of classic starting point of who's the who's the appeal of who's the kind of classic fascist appeal to it's the the, um, the small business owner who has you know some power over there um employees but is also you know ex exploited themselves and, and you know works themselves and all that sort of thing so i think there is something to it that like there's um there's an appeal to uh authority there's an appeal to in general and this this would be my 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 sort of half form thought that it it is a bit like a politics of anti-corruption made uh, like put throughout the whole of society so this idea of like the good citizen this yeah. is the yeah. this is the um, the enemy so in fact they're the ones who are kind of corrupt they're not playing by the rules of society so actually you want to strengthen the people who um so not the this is not the, the good citizens you want to strengthen the good citizens who are the ones who are playing by the rules and the the bad citizens are the ones who actually have less power but are in some ways corrupt because they're 
not benefiting from their corruption, but they're not following the rules. I don't know if that yeah. makes sense, but it just made me think that like there is a clear. Um, I think there is. We've turned yeah. the anti. We've turned the anti-corruption focus from the politicians to the rabble. And, you know, don't don't worry about politicians getting rich through their corruption. It's more the people breaking the rules at the, uh, the bottom of society. So we need to reinforce the rules. Well, except that it's not because it's not they, it's not really reinforce the rules. It's reinforced uh, like maybe punitivism, but it's not re it's not really um, in, in the name of order and norms. It's the opposite. It's in the name of, I guess, a sort of petty gangsterism. Right. That's where the micro power lies it's like i'm i'm one of the people cast as good the good citizens and therefore i can get away with whatever i want because i'm one of the good people and if you're trying to hold me back you're part of the elite or you're one of the you know what you're one of the bandits you're one of the criminals um so just just what, do you, what do you get away with alex huh i mean as a good citizen just just petty infractions you know actually and and the things that i would like to get away with which would be like smoking uh indoors or underneath an awning i really can and that's one thing which is very strictly applied <laughs> in brazil and it's really frustrating but uh so it doesn't have the no. that's one aspect where like you know kind of southern I european wanna, uh, i did want to say something about this though because i think this this whole episode in fact i think it kind of proves the point that i've been pushing on this and that you kind of, on the podcast and you suppressed me from a long time ago, which is the fact that Bolsonaro has so effectively mobilized, which is effectively uh, an anti-PC campaign, and that he seems to be on the brink of power, you know, for a second time on the basis of, you know, essentially kind of confronting political correctness. And that that is enough to win literally tens of millions of votes. That cuts against the point that you've constantly made on the pod, which is that, oh, you know, like political correctness is just something kind of it's the frivolity and froth of like Anglo-Saxon politics. No, 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 no. I think, no I, think, I think no, 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 no. Brazil. I, I, uh, I think political correctness is hugely institutionalized in northern societies. In Brazil, it isn't. It, not so much. And I think. So, but it clearly makes, resonates with enough people that he can build a campaign around it, but right? It's so not, your but it's not case just, about Brazilian exceptionalism, you know, is clearly kind of denied by it's the not campaign. No, no, it's not exceptionalism. I, I, I'm, my point is about northern exceptionalism that you know that it's a, a, a few, a small number of rich societies who um, who have a he, like who have a, a kind of um, upper middle class base which is hegemonic culturally in society, and in Brazil, it's it doesn't quite map on so neatly, right? Um, so I think the point is more just that, first of all, the class basis of Bolsonaro is pretty clear, right? Um, this election is very polarized on class terms. The bottom 50, 60 percent are very strongly pro Lula. And then upwards from that, it's very it's strongly pro Bolsonaro. Um, so it's basically, you know, it's, a, it's the lower middle class, not wealthy, but the lower middle class who um, are very strongly Bolsonaro. Um so I think that that is an important element in this. I think the transgression to move on to the kind of next topic is um, an important component, absolutely, in kind of that um, not non obeisance to official rules of you know of uh, formal forms of conduct of even public standards that provides a certain frisson. That is the kind of element of you know reaction against political correctness. Um, it's hard to know how to answer that because on the one hand, you know, as I said in the interview, the left used to be the party of transgression, at least in some sense. But on the other hand, you think, well, we should also be defending public standards, right? Um, not 
political correctness, not you can't say that, but to a certain a certain degree of of an understanding that you know certain things aren't fit for public discussion or and um, well, yeah, maintain a bound a boundary between of, public and private. Yeah, I think that's right. So I mean, and that kind of goes with a certain sense of um, a civic decorum of commitment to the kind of uh, certain kinds of uh, processes, procedures, and so on, which doesn't need to be conflated with veneration or respect even for, you know, the particular kind of um, methods of rule of the particular state. But I I mean, I think given the kind of the the crudity and extremity on which um, populist leaders with kind of Trump and Bolsonaro being very explicit examples that they trade off, I think it is, yeah, it is worth, um, it is worth kind of trying to hedge that in. Yeah, absolutely. Beyond that, I thought, I mean, you know, this is the most powerful point I took away was the fact that through keying in to apocalyptic Pentecostalism of modern Brazil and the way that gives, that allows ordinary Brazilians to feel that they, or the ones who support Bolsonaro at least, to feel that they have a stake in the nation. I thought that was, um, a re, you know, remarkably acute insight and particularly how, you know, the contrast with um, with uh, Lula's kind of more paternalistic image or the fact that it's kind of return, you know, let the good times return um, and how that doesn't quite have the same resonance for people feeling that they're participating in something where they have kind of a meaningful collective choice. And I thought that was, you know, the maybe the most uh, powerful insight that came through. Though I think what Miguel didn't kind of, uh, didn't really pick up on, though it was kind of the juxtaposition was right there, was the fact that the, you know, the kind of he blames Pentecostal kind of apoc apocalypticism for the problem, when it seems to me that has been presented by the left, you know, the global left, but including the Brazilian left on a silver platter, because, you know, the left's kind of um, endorsement and encouragement of apocalypse global warming, um, the pandemic, that these are, you know, these have been gifts um, to authoritarianism around the world, including that of the left. But in this specific context, you know, the way in which people resist that apocalypse and the kind of the blackmail that comes with it is by, um, you know, in the specific Brazilian context, according, this is the way I understood what Miguel was saying, they resisted by saying, well, you know, it's not going to be that bad because it brings the kingdom of God closer. Yeah, I mean, the, the politics of transcendence um, that Bolsonaro, at, you know, is is able to understand and grasp versus the politics of bare life of, of Lula. I think the way that um, Miguel put it that, you know, one way to understand this, that Bolsonaro is the revolutionary and Lula is the counter-revolutionary. I think that's a pretty provocative way to put it. But it seems, you know, in this context to be to be right, that there is a um, uh, a politics of rupture. And it's and it's coming as, you know, we've seen many times in the past few years from from the right and the the. It's, it's a restoring of the status quo and making everything okay and I'm, i mean beer and barbecues beer barbecues and bare life there you go those are the three the three um, those are in contradiction obviously um because but beer bare and life are is, good um, thing are good things uh, it's not just survival um but i mean i think but, but well maybe maybe but i mean you know people's life's project isn't isn't beer and barbecue as good as those things um but but i think the point the point is are. about the the apocalypticism is that there is no life project right i mean it's a politics very much centered around death 
And that's what's problematic with it. And I think, you know, to the extent that Bolsonaro represents a rupture, it's also a rupture with the, the Enlightenment, both in its conservative and radical and especially radical guises. Um, so that's what um, is so troubling yeah, about it. But that's like I say, I mean, that's I think, I mean, Miguel and you didn't quite say this, but it seemed, you know, like it's it they allows them to push back against the the kind of the left's apocalypse, right? So, you know, there are different responses. You could say like, oh, you know, global warming is, you know, kind of it isn't real. It's fake. It's a conspiracy. The pandemic is made up by pharmaceutical companies or, you know, the kind of the um, the kind of uh, the Pentecostal response, you know, kind of channeling Miguel's point is, well, you know, it's not, you know, we can bear these kinds of we can bear these uh, bad things, kinds of coming of um of a you know redemption in the future so it's a way to escape the blackmail i think which is um presented by the left i'm not sure there's a blackmail presented by the brazilian left i mean i i think that's a misreading i think it's uh i mean obviously it's uh yeah vote for lula or you get um total destruction i think in that regard yes perhaps but i think that then the challenge is to develop a politics which promises a national you project one of the earlier one of our earlier Bengazao kind of episodes you know they there was this point came across like it was you know the the remoteness of the brazilian middle class left middle classes who tried to stop carnival from happening in rio i mean how you know how okay but but how, that's minority but that and I, and i guess alciso i think was explicit about that you know that's a kind of minoritarian thing and it was a critique of a specific political party and its middle class left base that is not something that applies to pt and certainly not to the social movements and organizations that compose it so uh, you know i think it i think you have to put that in its context george um any final points here with regard to the politics of transgression versus transcendence because i think you know the, the way we discussed with miguel was that the, that was opposed to the transactional politics of lula that you know vote for me and you'll get good stuff. You'll get access to university, you'll get jobs, you'll get a higher income, rising minimum wage, and so on. Um, and so that is clearly obviously opposed to various aspects of Bolsonaro. You know, as we discussed, there's no transactional aspect to Bolsonaro because he gives you nothing uh, concrete in return. Um, in fact, there's it's very much the opposite. It's taking away, it's breaking down state capacity in all sorts of forms. But at the same time, that notion of transcendence and of transgression kind of stand a little bit opposed to each other because one is the Joker figure poking fun and saying the things that you shouldn't and can't say. Um, and the other one, the transcendent aspect is something much more, um, I don't know, holy for lack of a better word, right? But which um, it plays into a much more mystic kind of understanding um, of, uh, of what's going on. So I don't know how, how those two um, dialogue with one another. Yeah, I mean, there's there's three, isn't there? There's transgression, transcendence, transaction. You know, this this is starting to cook up a good academic paper here, or not a good academic paper, just an academic paper. I mean, the the I guess the question is like, which which is a, a sounder political strategy, trans offering transcendence or offering transactions? And I think in general, like if you discount the the idea that Bolsonaro is giving through a transaction he's giving you the kingdom of god i don't think that's um a very secure transaction i don't think you can ask for your money back if you keep the receipt on that and it doesn't happen um but i think transactional politics is you know in general a better a, a more solid way to build a base it's you, you reward your 
um, your allies, you punish your enemies, um, materially first, first and foremost, that's patronage. And it, and it goes quite, goes quite far in, in modern politics. I mean, I guess my, my, are we moving on to predictions? Cause this is going to come ahead, out. Yeah. Presumably. I mean, yeah, I mean, it does, it does still seem like, I, I guess actually though, this is, this is the danger that it seems from the discussion that there's like no way Bolsonaro can win that kind of analysis of micro power. Like what would a political scientist who's sympathetic to Bolsonaro say is Bolsonaro's appeal? Is there something that's, you know, something that we haven't discussed that could explain a Bolsonaro victory? Otherwise it seems like all of the things that Lula's offering are more, you know, are more majoritarian and that's how you win um, that's how you win elections. So I guess yeah. my, you know, that's, and that's what the polls seem to suggest, but it just seems to me like, um, is, is, is it too easy to say like, there's no way Bolsonaro can possibly win because this is his appeal. Um, and that can't quite be right. No, I mean, I think, you know, he, the story of this in some sense, this might not end up being the headline, but I think it's a truth to it. that Bolsonarismo has proved far more resilient than was expected um, and, you know, you, you can weigh up several different elements and end up they end up kind of evening out. So Bolsonaro has been terrible as a politician by any traditional understanding of the term. Um, he has the, the economy is terrible, right? Um, 600,000 people died during the pandemic and he laughed in people's faces, which alienated a lot of people. And yet he still has a lot of support. On the other hand, he also opened up the state coffers with his secret budget, spending, you know, up to hundreds of millions, hundreds of billions of reais, um, channeling pork to allies to get reelected, um, raising the basically creating a huge budgetary hole um, also by um, raising, you know, trans cash transfers to poor families. So all the and various other forms of subsidies and whatnot, just as a pure electoral move. And of course, that has an impact. That you know that that very clearly does. Yeah. Um, so you know, but you can. But once those things balance out and you remove all those elements, you know, you realize well, Bolsonarismo is not majority. It doesn't count, constitute a majority in Brazilian society, but it is still retains the support of a good thirty to forty percent of the population. You know, and that's um, that's something that will have to be grappled with well beyond this election. Okay, we'll leave it at that. We will be back with more on Brazil uh, after the election. We'll probably try to do one more Bunga Zone. So do stick with us. Uh, if you don't subscribe yet to BungaCast, do hit subscribe. And we have a Patreon where we put out two, at least two, uh, original episodes a month, uh, including extended interviews, bonus content, original episodes, uh, and responses to your questions where we dialogue with our uh, very active um, Patreon base there. So that's patreon.com slash BungaCast. We'd love to have you. And uh, anyway, we'll, we'll see you uh, very soon. Catch you later. Bye-bye. Thank you.